Hi, everyone. Just a note that we recorded this on Friday last week. And since we recorded it, the M23 has publicly accepted the ceasefire negotiated in Luanda, but has repeated its demands to negotiate with the Congolese government and is refusing to lay down arms or withdraw as demanded. There are also indications of renewed fighting involving the M23. Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we have my colleague Richard Moncrief on the show. Richard is our interim director for the Great Lakes, and he's here to speak on the latest developments and regional politics of the renewed crisis in eastern Congo and why Kenya is now at the heart of it. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on. So you are going to be taking us into a part of the region that we haven't really dived into, at least in terms of a full episode, which is um, eastern Congo in particular. First of all, uh, two days ago, there was a mini summit, as they're calling it, in Luanda that brought together the president of Congo, a couple other heads of state, as well as former President Uhuru Kenyatta. President Paul Kagame of Rwanda did not attend, which is something that you can explain to us. But first of all, what was the outcome of that and how does it relate to what's been a very much deteriorating situation in eastern Congo? So I guess there's two ways of looking at it. One is to read the official communique and there we see an increased sense of urgency you can see it you can kind of you read it and you can sense a frustration amongst heads of state and you know the focus of that frustration is the m23 insurgent group around goma which i'm I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit more depth in a minute but the rwandans who are widely seen as backing that m23 insurgency didn't turn up in angola paul kagame didn't turn up and he sent his minister of foreign affairs. And and of course, in these summits, you know, when you've got a head of state against a, a foreign minister, it's never quite the same. The protocol all, all is kind of out of kilter, let's say. Kagame and Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi last met in, in Luanda back in July. And since then, the situation has deteriorated quite significantly, especially the last couple of weeks. So the communique underlines previous commitments. It asks arms groups to lay down their weapons. It uh, presses on all parties to use their influence over armed groups to to do so. And there's a bit of sabre-rattling in there as well. There's talk about newly deployed East African force, which again I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, going out and attacking armed groups that don't comply and so forth. So that's the communique. But then if you look at the attendance and you kind of read between the lines a little bit, I think you sense... Uh, a missed opportunity, really. And I think you also sense that the, the heads of state of DR Congo and, and Rwanda are probably going to have to get together in person to make any more significant progress. Mm. So there's a lot we'll, we'll need to unpack here, but let's zero in on the actual situation on the ground. What is the situation in eastern Congo right now? Yeah, I mean, the summit, you know, there's a sense of urgency around the summit, and rightly so, because the last 10 days, two weeks, have been pretty bad in North Kivu, because the the M23 has expanded out from its base in Rutshuru. That's the area of North Kiva that kind of goes along the Rwandan border. Pushed further south towards the provincial capital of Goma, which is uh, the only really big city in the region, sitting on Lake Kivu and also backed onto the Rwandan border. Didn't actually move on Goma, which they did 10 years ago, causing a, a, a huge kind of diplomatic incident. But this time they didn't, and they moved west into Masisi province. The uh, danger of this is that by moving around Goma, remembering that Goma backs onto a lake, they've already cut off the main road artery heading north, which is 
the biggest supply route for food and other goods coming into Goma, they're kind of the danger is they're strangling the city and prices are going up very fast. There's also been a huge amount of displacement in the last couple of weeks. The UN is talking about 180,000 people displaced or displaced again in the month of November. So there's a huge humanitarian catastrophe unfolding as well. So who is M23 briefly for those in our audience who aren't aware? And also, um, why is it that we can't really talk about M23 without discussing Congo's neighbors, especially Rwanda? So I think to really understand this, we need to go back even if only briefly into the murky waters of the Congolese civil war in the 1990s, the Mobutu regime came to an end. And also, as after the Rwandan genocide in 1994, a huge number of refugees, and among them many many militia, armed militia, poured into the Congo from Rwanda. Um, there was also a huge amount of violence and displacement out of Burundi in the 1990s. So Eastern Congo in the 90s was this, this kind of mix of armed groups and refugees. And one of those armed groups was the CNDP, which was a largely Tutsi organization. The Tutsis are a a regional ethnic group. They're the ethnic group of current President Paul Kagame and and, and many leaders in Rwanda. And the CNDP was a very significant armed group in the 1990s. And then in the 2000s, many of them were integrated into the army under the condition of peace deals. Now, around 10 years ago, Felix Tshisekedi's predecessor, Joseph Kabila, had the idea of trying to break up some of these army units and deploy them in other parts of the country. Now, the former CNDP officers, who have a lot of business interests in the Kivus, they strongly resisted these moves. And as a way of resisting them, they created the M23 insurgency movement to try to put pressure on Kinshasa. And indeed, many of them joined that movement. So the deeper roots of the M23 are in that, in the civil war. The M23, since 2012, has pressed for... Broadly speaking, two things. They want an amnesty uh, from top to bottom of their organisation, from the kind of foot soldiers right up to the leaders. They want to be able to return to DR Congo with that amnesty in their pocket. They've been based mainly in Rwanda and Uganda since 2012. And they're also underneath this, they don't always state this, but I think it's fairly clear that they also want to reopen the issue of integration into the Congolese army. Uh, it, it, uh, several people have asked me, so what, why do the uh, you know, M23 want to go back into the Congolese army? And, and I think the answer is that they see it as a safe haven from which to protect their interests and pursue their commercial interests. Kinshasa at the moment is putting a big red line under integrating any further rebels into the army. So the recent moves of the M23 are likely informed in large part by desire to try and put pressure on Kinshasa to, you know, compromise on those issues. In terms of Rwandan support, well, Rwandans uh, have supported these largely Tutsi groups, you know, for the last 20 years or so. There's a fair amount of evidence has accumulated over the years that shows that uh, Kigali and the Rwandan army give different kinds of moral and material support to these organisations. And the United Nations panel of experts looking at sanctions busting on the DRC has reported this year 
some evidence that Rwanda continues to offer material support to the M23. And of course, that's to the fury of Congolese. And there's a worrying levels of anti-Rwandan feelings in, in the DR Congo at the moment. Just to be clear, no one really, except for the Rwandans, no one, no one really seems to uh, deny that Rwanda is 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 implicated in this. And it looks like kind of how the diplomacy has been set up implies that this is that this is much more than an internal conflict for Congo. Yes, exactly, Alan, and and that informs a lot of what's what's going on at the moment because you you see. If you read between the lines of all the communiques, you can see that the regional leaders are pretty convinced that pressure on Kigali is going to be key to get the M23 to back down. The Rwandans have never admitted to any support for the M23. You know, maybe they'll have that conversation in private, but they've certainly never publicly admitted to that. And they push back on other points. You know, they, they push back on other areas by saying that, well, Kinshasa is supporting the FDLR, which is a a militia whose origins lie in the Rwandan genocide, which is vehemently opposed to Kigali. And uh, Kigali, support, Kigali accuses the Congolese army of working with them. So there's a kind of sense of trading accusations. But, but it is clear, I would say, from the scale of the fighting and sort of how successful the offensive has been that M23 is not just using resources it was able to gather in a refugee camp. There's a wide understanding that Rwanda are behind the M23 to some degree. There might be some difference in, in, in appreciation of detail. But I think most people do, do accept that and you do see that as part of the diplomacy. Why did this flare up now? President Chisikedi originally had had made a point of trying to improve relations with Kagame, not just Kagame, but broadly his neighbors. So what went wrong? It's not in- entirely clear. I mean, there's, you know, there's a few kind of theories about that. You're right that Chisikedi did launch a big diplomatic initiative in his first couple of years. He He came into power as you might understand, promising to bring greater security to the East. And he, he, I think, rightly felt that there were diplomatic levers he could pull to get that. However, this seemed to somewhat unravel in 2021. The rivalry between Rwanda and Uganda is likely behind it to some degree. The Rwandans and Ugandans have clashed over their influence in Eastern DRC, they have rival commercial interests. There's a huge booming gold trade coming out of eastern Congo. And Chiskedi, the Congolese president, last year started getting much closer to Kampala and to the Ugandan army. And he invited the Ugandan army to come into eastern Congo to fight another insurgent group called the ADF, um, uh, uh, Islamist group is causing real havoc in, in Ituri province, just to the north of North Kivu province. And many see that as a trigger for dissatisfaction in Kigali and a desire to flex muscles. And that, that may have led them to give some kind of green light to the M23. Of course, I've already you know described that the M23 have their own motivations. They're not entirely uh, Rwandan voice pieces. You know, they are they are Congolese, they are insurgents, and they're motivated, as I said, by a desire for amnesty and positions within the army. So they have their own reasons. But it may be that regional politics was the spark and may help explain why Why now. Even given that, doesn't it seem a bit extreme that Kigali would back M23 to, you know, essentially attack Goma in response to the fact that there are strengthening ties between Kampala and Kinshasa? Can you help explain sort of how one 
leads to the other? Is this is this a situation where there was a spark, but then we've just had you know an escalatory spiral that that's led to a much bigger breakdown? Because it does it does feel like a rather extreme sort of response to a bit of disgruntlement. Well, let's say. I think that Rwanda's historic support for the M23 is pretty well established. When we look at its motivations, it's you know it's harder to be certain, isn't it? You know, you can talk to different people and get slightly different versions. The Rwandans also may well be concerned by the treatment of Tutsis in in the DR Congo. Tutsis are a widespread group, but a minority in in north in the Kivu provinces of the Congo, and sometimes subjected to you know marginalisation or stigmatisation. Now, of course, many Congolese would rightly answer that uh, the M23 rebellion makes such a situation worse. But nevertheless, it's possible that people in Kigali see uh, the interest in having a you know pretty muscular armed group on the ground in the Congo to defend not only their interests, but the interests of the wider Tutsi community. Again, you talk to some people and, and they say, yes, that's, you know, that, that's a motivation. But it's, well, it's difficult to be certain about motivations, even if we have a fair degree of certainty about some Rwandan support to the group. We've talked about the difficult relations between Uganda and Rwanda, but Uganda also has a relationship with M23. No, how does how how does that work and how does that add to this picture? So, yes, Uganda has historically supported the M23 and in 2013 when the M23 were beaten back by a fairly aggressive UN reaction, half of them went to Rwanda and half went to Uganda. And there's a kind of what people commonly refer to as a Ugandan wing of the M23. Now, the question of whether Uganda is supporting the M23 this time round is pretty controversial. The UN expert panel reports have not mentioned Ugandan support this year, but many Congolese on the ground report seeing Ugandan nationals in or around the areas controlled by the M23. So the evidence is perhaps at the moment uh, slightly weaker as concerns Ugandan support. I think also the motivations that Uganda might have for supporting the M23 at the moment are somewhat less clear. I think we have to remember that Uganda is currently pretty in pretty good uh, set of relations with Kinshasa. Their intervention in Ituri to fight the ADF is a pretty collaborative um, venture with the uh, Congolese state. You know, I think one could fairly ask, well, why would they wish to support the M23 at this time? Although that, you know, that doesn't rule out that there may be perhaps some individuals in Uganda, perhaps not with a kind of official sign off, but some individuals might be offering some support. I think that's fairly, fairly feasible, too. So that's good background. What would an escalation look like? Obviously, there's the ongoing concern that M23, you know, actually attacks or even overruns Goma. Again, but there's also obviously the regional dimension. What what would a continued escalation on this uh, between Congo and Rwanda? You know, what, what could that potentially look like, and what what's the major concern here? Well, uh, let's deal with what's a quite a frequent question first, which is: Could we see Rwandan and, and DR Congo troops fighting each other along the border area? I think that's really very unlikely. It doesn't tend to happen that way. <laughs> you know, it, it, countries in the region tend to act through proxy groups. Rwanda has always denied any support to the M23, and that deniability has always been important to Kigali. So I think they would want to in- avoid a scenario like that. What's much more likely is simply a continuation of M23 violence, uh, which would make 
the picture very complicated would continue to you know block a resolution between uh, Kinshasa and Kigali the goma question is is very important a lot of people there do fear that the M23 is going to take the city um in order to put pressure on Kinshasa in order to then you know go into negotiations with a strong hand showing the chaos they can create and they got fairly close to doing so around about a week 10 days ago the other big concern that people have is a kind of economic strangulation of the city again with the intention of putting pressure on the government prices in goma are rocketing at the moment so the la- the latest i saw was you know some products are doubling and other products going up by a factor of 3 or 4 brutally hard for an already impoverished population that's also hosting a fairly large number of displaced people from the countryside so obviously a major factor that changed about 10 days ago um, is that Kenya has deployed officially under the East African community to Goma. And this is a new factor. A lot of this is obviously feels a bit like deja vu, but Kenya's role is 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 something quite novel and, and interesting and I think will be of interest to our sort of core audience on, on the podcast. Um, so why just why is Kenya in, in Goma and Eastern Congo? Well, I think at the first level, it's there because uh, Kenya's there because President Chiskedi of Congo asked them to come in. And it was his initiative to join the East African community earlier this year, which opened the door for the Kenyan deployment. So I think we first should look at Chiskedi's motivations here. And I think he is looking for allies wider afield in order to kind of buttress his position against his close neighbours and particularly Rwanda. And that seems, you know, fairly logical. And I think he's also looking for some soldiers who'll be a bit more on the front foot than the UN force that's been in Goma for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Then we come to the come to the Kenyan side. Well, I would see an attempt by Kenya to forge wider, finding a greater role in the East African community And the Kenyans often talk about trade opportunities in the Great Lakes. We know that Kenyan businesses have a stake in some businesses in DRC, and that's been growing in recent years, the banking sector amongst others. And when you talk to Kenyan diplomats, their way of of seeing it is this, at least this is the the way they consistently put it, is we want to bring peace to Eastern Congo because over time that'll open up commercial opportunities And as Kenyans, we're well-placed to profit from them, you know, in a way that is uh, good for everyone. We've also heard that Kenya sees Eastern Congo as a potential market, partly because it's a Swahili phone. I think that's right. I mean, it's not actually that far from Kenya. And of course, Kenya has the uh, great asset of having ports, while that whole area of Great Lakes is, is landlocked. I mean, the DRC does have a port, but it's right over to the west. So I think that question of access to the sea is also... Uh, in Kenyan mines, where the Kenyans have this kind of on-off rivalry with Tanzania um, in, in relation to, uh, you know, trade to and from the Indian Ocean. So what does it look like the Kenyan force is is going to do? Are they going to take a fight to M23, or does this look primarily like to serve as sort of a buffer and, you know, to, to get diplomatic leverage, basically, and perhaps protect Goma? Well, I think that depends who you talk to. And I think there's also a little bit of what we say, you know, game playing, because there's the deterrence logic. You know, I think they have to talk up their willingness to go and fight the M23 in order to then translate that into diplomatic pressure. So we saw that uh, Kenyan President Kenyatta, who's the mediator for 
for talks. So he was in Luanda a couple of days ago and he signed the communique which talks about the new East African force really taking the fight to the M23. So I think that that's uh, some kind of necessary sabre-rattling. But I think that the Kenyans do see it much more in diplomatic terms and they hope that this force gives them a place at the table, opens doors for them, gives them a bit of leverage over the DRC government because they're protecting Goma and might potentially set them up to have a stronger position vis-a-vis the Rwandans and eventually the M23 to try to persuade the M23 to back off and try to persuade the different parties to talk to each other in a more constructive way. So I think that, broadly speaking, the Kenyans see it as diplomatic, but they understand that you've got to flex your muscles a bit to get there. It's interesting, this pivot of Congo towards towards Kenya, because it, it does, when you look at the sort of constellation of, of actors and the amount of cooks in the kitchen, I think when the idea of Kenya getting involved in Congo originally came up, I think there was a bit of skepticism, including from us, and, and I think that remains to some degree, but you can also see as these diplomatic initiatives proceed, the sort of logic of Kinshasa, like you said, wanting, you know, someone else in, in the room to sort of counter, you know, its, its neighbors around the table. Yes. And the complexity of it all isn't an accident, is it? You know, it's it's part of, in a way, the competing strategies of the different parties. You know, Chiskedi quite likes having both Angola and Kenya involved in these talks, as long as he can persuade them that uh, putting pressure on Rwanda is the way forward. It's quite interesting what Felix Chiskedi is doing, because his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, was very close to Southern African powers, such as Zimbabwe and South Africa. And he tried to get them involved, really for the same reasons, to try to you know, strengthen his hand when it comes to negotiations, real negotiations or implicit ones, with neighbouring Uganda and especially Rwanda, and and then finally on these on the on the Kenyans, there's this Nairobi process uh, that we haven't much discussed, which would be good for you to 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 sort of explain. Um, there's the Luanda process, there's the EAC deployment. Do do these all fit together or or not really yet? Yes, there's a, there's a lot going on. It's right. Dealing with all this complexity is, is one of the challenges for all the regional diplomats competing. Well, certainly multiple initiatives. I think the people involved would argue they're complementary. I, I think we can see them as in part competing. The Nairobi process. Well, when the DR Congo joined the East African community, uh, the leaders sat around and thought, so what can we do here? Well, what we need is a diplomatic track at top level to get uh, heads of state to talk to each other. That kind of already existed with the Angolans, who aren't part of the East African community. And they then thought, well, what we also need is some kind of talks process with armed groups. That won't be with heads of state. So it was Congolese officials meet armed group representatives. And Nairobi stuck up his hand and said, we'll we'll host talks along those lines. Those talks occurred in April. And there's another set of talks should happen this week. Not all that many armed groups in Eastern Congo have made the travel to Nairobi, only 14 in April, and we'll see how many come this week. And it's not entirely clear what they're talking about either. I guess it's a forum in which these armed groups can express their grievances and can express the grievances of the communities they purport to represent. The 
one of the dangers, of course, is it gets tangled up in the problems that these talks frequently meet, which is, you know, are the people around the table really representative of the communities they say they represent? Are they really legitimate people to talk about these issues? And how does that fit with the national reconciliation and disarmament processes which are underway? So those are complicated questions. I'd say over the last few weeks, you get a sense that the people behind the Nairobi process, so people around former President Kenyatta, have certainly grown more aware of the need to coordinate both with the high-level Angolan diplomatic track and also with the domestic disarmament track. And you do see you do see some efforts to make sure that those are not in, you know, direct competition at least. And M23 has not been part of or has been kicked out of the Nairobi process, right? Is is them rejoining M23, or sorry, is M23 rejoining the Nairobi process? Is that one potential scenario where where this ends up going? Well, I've, I, I think that the, um, the, the top-level diplomacy needs to be sorted out before we get meaningful talks with between Congolese officials and the M23. The Congolese are absolutely convinced that the M23 are not, you know, not a valid interlocutor, that they need to talk with Rwanda in a more frank way. And Rwanda doesn't want that conversation. The M23 could eventually rejoin the Nairobi process, could eventually express what their their demands or grievances are in that process. At some point, it's likely, whether it's in Nairobi or somewhere else, it's likely that the Congolese will talk to the M23 and they will put their red lines on the table. I don't think Kinshasa is going to budge much on the uh, their refusal to envisage integrating rebels into the army. Particularly, they're very unlikely to do so in an election year because it would be very, very unpopular with the Congolese. So I think we, we're we quite a way off direct talks between the Congolese and the M23 at the moment. The M23 almost certainly will not turn up to Nairobi this week. So we've got diplomatic work to do before any meaningful talks can take place. You mentioned elections. First of all, how are those elections looking? I imagine this has been a sort of powerful national rallying cry for Chisakedi, given how unpopular Rwanda is. Um, is that is that a major factor playing into this? This is a really big factor, and I, I think you know our listeners really need to you know understand should understand the strength of national feeling in DR Congo against Rwanda. Which, while it's perhaps understandable after twenty years of civil conflict in the East, it can have an important impact on the diplomacy. It can impede good diplomacy. The elections at the moment we're a year off from scheduled elections. The National Election Commission has started registering voters in the West, hoping to make some progress in easier areas. And then if the security situation calms down in the East, register voters there in 2023. With a year to go, it's difficult to say whether the you know the whole thing's on track. But I think what we can say is that if the security situation isn't improved, in particular in North Kivu, but also in Ituri province, then even registering voters, never mind actually holding a vote, is going to be very difficult. And of course, that leads to a whole lot of questions about, you know, whether the Congolese population accept the outcome of the election and so forth. So there's some important questions behind that. 
Rwanda, of course, has been, you know, flexing its muscles more and more and playing a continental role more and more. They were just, I think, described in a foreign policy article as Africa's a policeman, more or less. Do Has it been difficult for international actors to, to pressure Rwanda? You know, are they seen as a sort of more and more indispensable actor in terms of continental peace and security? Does this, has this, is this one of the complicating factors in terms of figuring out how to de-escalate this? Yes, I think that is. I think that is a factor. For a long time now, the Rwandans have engaged in international peacekeeping operations and are regarded as very effective by host governments and host populations. And you know their role is really quite welcomed in in many countries. But they've used that participation to leave a diplomatic advantage. I've done this before. It's fairly widely considered that they threatened to pull out of Sudan if the UN didn't shelve a major human rights report into events in DR Congo, which would have fingered the Rwandan back back in the early 2000s. So they, they do know how to use their military prowess to make themselves useful, make themselves useful to the UN, make themselves useful to the region, and make themselves useful to France, because they're currently deploying in areas of great French interest, notably in northern Mozambique, where there's a very big French oil interest. And they, yeah, they, they, they do know how to lever their, their military deployments to make sure that Western countries tread softly when they address the issue of what Rwanda's doing in Eastern DRC. So how does this end? Surely at some point we need to get the actual two main protagonists, the presidents of Congo and Rwanda, sitting in the same room together. How do we get there and, and, and what would a sort of solution start to look like? Well, I think that there's more pressure needs applying, starting with regional powers. What would that look like? Well, it needs to be on both sides. I think that uh, the Kinshasa isn't blameless in this. I think there's a lot of unhelpful rhetoric been coming out of Kinshasa in recent months. And I think that dialing that rhetoric down, being more careful in how they speak about Rwanda in public would be would be helpful, would be a helpful start. There's other things that the DR Congo government can do. They could make some clear signals that they're going to try to stop a collaboration with the FDLR, who I mentioned are an anti-Rwandan rebel group active in the Kivus, and that might demonstrate some goodwill in terms of the regional politics. In terms of Rwanda's role, what we're looking for is for them to rein in the M23, to send signals to the M23 that they won't support them anymore unless they pull back to previous positions and enter a ceasefire. I would say that to get there, we're going to need a fair amount of diplomatic pressure and probably a bit of pressure on the ground in the sense that the Kenyans are going to have to demonstrate that they are capable of doing a bit more than holding Goma, that they're capable of perhaps taking back some of the main road arteries that lead into the city to show the M23 that they can't have it all their own way in South Kivu, which might incentivize them to pull back and to come to the table. Eventually, when you know, when we hope that the M23 and the Congolese government officials start talking, the question of amnesty, which was a part of previous agreements, I think needs to be needs to be more clearly addressed. And more broadly, the question of the fate of M23 soldiers and leadership, who are Congolese, and the 
you know, they say they want to return to the Congo, obviously under certain conditions. And I, while we can, I think, understand Kinshasa's desire not to integrate them into the army, I think there does need to be a conversation about what happens to both foot soldiers and leadership of the M23 in the longer term to arrive at a more sustainable solution. Because at the moment, we're just seeing this coming round again every five, ten years. And each time it comes round, it blows off course all the national and international efforts to encourage disarmament and reconciliation in North Kivu. You already see armed groups who are kind of mobilising against the M23. So the M23's presence in the Kivus leads to a whole load of other problems of armed groups uh, rising up and mobilising their communities and arming young people to go and fight the M23, but also to generally fight other enemies and push forward the interests of the armed groups. So we need to rein in the M23 in order to go back to making progress on disarmament and stabilization in the in the broader eastern DRC. A couple a couple bigger questions to sort of close us out beyond the sort of immediate crisis. I the deployment of Kenya as part of this East African community force, you know, appears in some ways to be a sort of silent indictment, I'd say of the UN mission there Minusco, which is which is huge and has been there a long time and it has has barely even come up in our conversation thus far. What what do you make of that generally? You've been crisis groups, West Africa director, Central Africa director, you've seen a lot of these big missions, you know, CAR, Mali, which, you know, are also struggling. Um, is, 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 is this a twilight of these big UN peacekeeping missions? The, the UN force in the Congo is really under great pressure from a population that is very frustrated at its inability to bring peace to the east of the country. And only recently we've seen very serious anti-UN riots in Goma. I was discussing with one of our staff recently in Goma about their own personal security. And they said that if the UN now patrol Goma, they're protected themselves by a Congolese army unit, because the chances are so high that they'll come under attack you know, attack, I mean, you know, throwing stones and so forth by the local population. And that's really a very difficult position for what's meant to be a peacekeeping organisation. The Congolese government has stated their intent to start serious talks about withdrawing the UN force. The previous government has done that. There's been this discussion about withdrawing the UN from the Congo for a good 10 years, and it remains fairly near its peak. It's, it's still over 14,000 troops. But I think that those discussions are going to heat up. And in the next couple of years, both before and after the elections, we're going to see some really serious discussions about the UN leaving the DRC. Now, that, that raises a question of whether the East African force could replace the, the UN. And in some ways, of course, the East African force will never replace the UN because the UN comes with a whole load of logistical backup and, you know, is, is much bigger than any force that the East African community would ever deploy. But I think there's an aspiration amongst the Congolese that um, they would like to see Kenyan troops there rather than the UN, even though the current deployment is, um, you know, there's no there's no great expectation it's going to last very long, I think. It's, it's six months renewable, which is often the case, but I think the expectation is it won't be around forever. I think, Alan, in, ter- in, in, in answer to your question about the broader trend, one comparison I find very interesting is with the multinational joint task force in the Lake Chad Basin, which was 
an African initiative driven by an alliance between Chad and Nigeria, which sought to use what regarded as fairly competent African troops, in this case Chadian, in the DRC case Kenyan, to take the fight to a nasty insurgent group. And the it was very much about regional African politics with the interests of neighbours and the countries affected at heart, rather than being about the rather kind of distant politics of the UN Security Council and troop contributing countries. So I think in that sense, this East African deployment to Eastern Congo does fit into uh, a kind of complicated African effort to see what uh, African solutions to African problems could actually look like on the ground. Richard, thanks so much for um, for finally coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. You can find more about our work or read our reports at crisisgroup.org. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.